the Apostle Paul in uh, uh, one of the most powerful texts in all the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, tells us how we are to oppose the devil. Uh, you know, the only time we ever exercise a demon is by standing up against it, according to Holy Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore... This principle is joined by the, uh, the Apostle James in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And, of course, also the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith. As we look at the text today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, uh, it, the, the passage itself is a reminder from the Apostle Paul of his affection, his great desire to continue to support the church of the Thessalonians. Uh, and, uh, and that is the, the principle, and we'll talk about that principle. But in this short passage, he mentions Satan twice. And it occurred to me this would be a good opportunity to inform us about the evil one, to inform us about the devil and how the Satan uh, both resists and hinders your work as an individual, also our church as a church, and also uh, the Christianity worldwide. It is important for us to be aware of his scheme so that we can stand firm against us. So in some ways, that's a little bit of a confession uh, I am going to teach what the passage meant to teach, but I'm also going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail and tell you more about the devil. And I do so with some fear and trembling. Whenever I preach about the devil, the devil likes to stay down and low and quiet. Uh, whenever I preach about the devil, it always makes me a little nervous because things come up during the week that don't normally uh, come up. I've already warned the media booth uh, that uh, whenever the devil attacks, he attacks the media bo booth. Or at least if I make a mistake, I blame the media booth. That might be the better way of putting it. But I've already warned them. Uh, so we can just expect some, some uh, opposition, perhaps. But that's the way it is. And it's better to know your enemy and for you to be encouraged to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and watch uh, the amazing power of God uh, show us about uh, this devil that is in opposition to everything that he tries to do. Father, we do turn to you right now. And we thank you so much for your holy word. Thank you, God, that we can have uh, confidence that we fight against the devil, uh, the most powerful, in a sense, created being other, uh, that, that was ever created. And yet, he is a defeated foe. And yet, he has already lost the war. But we do find ourselves in the battle. So I pray, God, that we would be aware of his schemes and that we as individuals and as a church would be able to stand against them. And that you would use this sermon, these texts, these hymns, these prayers, this service of worship to help us to do so today and for the rest of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 through, uh, uh, through 3, 5 today. This is one of those awkward 
chapter breaks, uh, and I probably, it's probably better to take as, as a full unit here. Uh, I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll break it down into six different uh, parts. You might find your home group help insert helpful to help you follow along with the sermon. Also, on the other side of the outline uh, are some questions that you might find helpful for you to go back and have uh, family devotions or uh, to use in your upcoming home groups. But let's turn our attention now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. God says, the apostle writes... But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or our joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance and that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Again, if you would look here, we're going to first look at the ministry, ministry affliction. I'm sorry, ministry affection. Then we're going to see ministry obstructed, then ministry ambition, ministry action, ministry affliction, and then ministry achievement. First of all, here in verses 17 through 18a, we see the affection that the apostle Paul ha uh, has now. He is struggling here because uh, he is, uh, had to be absent for the first Thessalonians. You will recall from Acts chapter 17, a riot began there. He uh, kind of had to flee uh, out of that in order to protect the church. And it's been some months now since he's been there. Uh, and they have, uh, the persecution has increased, if anything. Uh, and he's concerned for the welfare of the Thessalonian church, that they're going to stay in the fight, that they will not apostatize and, and turn their back on the Lord. But he writes so in such a, 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 an affectionate way. You might recall in previous sermons, he, 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 he basically says he's like a tender mother nursing his baby. That's the kind of love that he has for this church. And he's like a father who exhorts them and trains them here. And here he says here that, uh, that uh, but we, brethren, haven't been taken away from you for a short time. Uh, that idea of taken away is actually to be orphaned. It's what would, uh, a, a parent would say when they would lose a child or a child would lose their parents, that they've been orphaned. It's a strong, speaking of these strong family bonds uh, that they have been struggling with. It's like a, he is a parent who is uh, grieving over a lost child. Uh, he says, but we are, we, we've been uh, away from you in person, but not in spirit. So in other words, the separation uh, uh, is not going to affect the emotion or, uh, or the spiritual contact that he has with them. He says here, we were more eager with a great desire to see your face. That idea of des great desire uh, is a dominant passion or compelling or a controlling desire. In ancient Greek writing, is often spoken of in, as sexual desire. So Paul is just, he's just burning with a desire to be with the Thessalonians again. He's trying to communicate that because so many people have gone into the church and says, Paul doesn't care about you anymore. He doesn't care about you anymore. And the devil has maybe caused some to be tempted to think that Paul's given up on them. So he's, he's using very strong language to talk about his affection. 
And he says, if we wanted to come to you, we don't know where Paul is at this point in time. There have been various conjectures. Uh, and we don't know, uh, we don't know uh, what attempts were made to go see the Thessalonians, but, but evidently the various attempts were made and he couldn't do it. And he has this kind of personal touch because he's also representing Silas and Timothy in his letter. He says here, I, Paul, more than once. In other words, I personally have been trying to get up there despite what the people say here. And I just, what I can just appreciate this is this, this pastor's love for that congregation. He, he really wasn't there very long. And yet he has a consuming interest in their spiritual welfare. If you would pray for the officers of this church, and we hope that you are doing that, one of the things that you, that you should pray for on a regular basis, if you would, is that we have not just a, a, a responsibility to shepherd the flock. We understand that biblically. We have a responsibility to shepherd the flock. But that we love the flock. That we would have an affection towards you. Uh, that is something that's uh, sometimes in ministry is kind of difficult to do because, well, frankly, you're a mess sometimes, <laughs> you know, and we struggle sometimes and we have our own messes to deal with in our own lives and our own families and stuff like that. But that would be a great prayer that we'd have the kind of affection that the Apostle Paul has for the Thessalonians, the kind of affection that we would have for you as a congregation. We see here that ministry of obstructing. This is kind of where I, the road I want to go down here. Uh, in verse 2, 18, he says, And yet Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. John MacArthur says, When a church begins, uh, when God begins to bless a church, Satan begins to attack that church. Uh, Satan, of course, means, that's another word for the devil, it means the adversary or the one who resists. By his very nature, he is a hinderer. He is one who is always trying to get in the way, God's way, your way, the church's way, uh, universally. 1 Peter 5 says this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. He uses that term in that text of your adversary, the Satan. 1 Corinthians uh, 11 tells us how he kind of gets away with this. He says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, why is it important for you to understand the principles behind Satan? Because most people not only don't understand Satan, they deny that he actually exists. They deny that he actually exists. According to a Barner poll uh, done a couple of years ago, uh, something like 60% of Americans strongly agreed or, or agreed somewhat to the principle that Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. It's just Satan is just sort of a symbol of the evil that's out there, but he doesn't actually, he's not a personal person uh, or, or spirit. Only 26% agree that Satan is real. Now that's remarkable. That is absolutely remarkable. By the way, even more people say that there's no such thing as the Holy Spirit. So let's look at some verses here. Uh, some verses that talk about this impersonal spirit of evil uh, that is out there trying to do us woe. And I've got, basically, there's two principles here. Satan's uh, evil ministry of hindering occurs in two, two different places, prevents people from believing, and then weakens the faith of those who do believe. So there's two audiences in every sermon. There's the people who are in darkness who need to come to the light, and there's some people who are in the light, most of you that are in the light, and want to come to greater light. Satan is after both of you. He's kind, for those of you who are not born again, he's trying to prevent you from being born again. From those of you who are born again, he's trying to keep you from enjoying being born again and from being useful 
uh, in the kingdom of God. So I'm just going to go through these verses here. If anybody wants them, if you'll email me, uh, you know, I'll be happy to send these verses to you. I don't think I put them in the home group's help. It's just, it was too many. Yeah, isn't that funny? We deny Satan exists in America, and yet there's verse after verse. I had to cut out verses about Satan. All right, first of all, he prevents people from believing. That's his way of, of, of hindering here. Second uh, Corinthians 4. And even though our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are groping in blindness, and it's like Satan just covers their eyes so they don't see the gospel. That's why one person could hear a message and get saved. The person right next to him could resent the messenger, could resent God all the more. Mark chapter 4, the sower sows the word, and there are the ones... This is talking about this, this is the parable of the, of the sower throwing out seeds on the road. Uh, and the ones that are beside the road, the seeds that are out there, were sown. And uh, when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown to them, like birds would take away seed before it could ever be planted. Second Thessalonians, which we'll get to uh, in some months future. And then that, when he speaks about the last time and the, and the things that will happen on earth before the end of the times. And then that lawless one will be revealed. The Lord will slay with his breath a mouth and according and bring to an end the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is according to the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Uh, he's a magician. And he will fool people into worshiping him, when, and he's the one actually performing the, the false signs and false wonders. And with the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. He is the great deceiver. He's been doing that since he shows up on, on the third chapter of the Bible, right? As the great deceiver who... Caused the whole world to fall into sin. Second Timothy 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Talking about the leaders uh, of the church. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Held captive by him to do his will. Satan takes slaves, and he gets those slaves to fight in his army. And you have to remember that. Uh, it's important. If you, uh, if you go back to the, the two towers in the Lord of the Rings where um, Gandalf is confronting uh, Saruman up in the tower there, after Saruman has killed just scores of Rohirrim and caused this terrible battle and, uh, and burned down Fangorn Forest and all that, Gandalf has remarkable grace, shows great mercy. He was going to let Saruman go because he realized that as evil as Saruman was, he was a slave. In a sense, while he harmed others, he was a victim because he was held captive by the devil to do his will. That's why our, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. We don't hate the people. They are actually captives. We hate their commander, the devil. And then more, probably more, most of you are Christians, so this is more for your purpose. He weakens the faith of those who do believe. First Chronicles 21 said that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. He, he kind of worked on David's pride. He said, you know, you're doing so well. You've, got it. You've kind of consolidated all the tribes here. Everything's going well. You've got plans for building of the, of the, uh, the temple and everything. You know, what you ought to do, you ought to have a little census. Let's just go about let everybody know how, how big your kingdom is. 
Job, of course, chapter 2, the devil is a prominent figure in the beginning of that book. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord to smote Job with sore boils and the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He caused disease so that Job would abandon the faith. Matthew 16, when uh, Peter tempts Jesus to be selfish, to look out for himself instead of dying for your sins, aren't you glad God, Jesus ignored Peter? <laughs> And Jesus says this, but he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. That's how the devil works in your life. He sets you on man's interest, not on God's interest. That's one of the big reasons why churches are so ineffective, is that we get into our own comforts, our own routines, our own little programs that we want for ourselves. We don't participate, we don't serve, we don't help, we don't have a great commission vision, we have a, we have a vision for our comforts on Sunday morning and, and because we set our mind on man's interest instead of on God's interest. Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was being tempted in, in, the, in the wilderness for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. So even Satan even tempted Jesus. Good luck with that one. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, I'm afraid that the serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that you might, your minds will be led astray by the simplicity and pure devotion of Christ. Satan complicates worship. He distracts you. Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's always Satan's goal. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the, Satan hates the idea of you pleasing God. So he's always trying to disrupt your faith. He's getting you to be turned inward, to get overwhelmed with life, be depressed, be anxious, and just give up. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when speaking of intimate relationships between husband and wife, it's interesting the context here. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time. Uh, that is with intimacy, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If you have areas of life that, are, that you're lacking self-control in, those are opportunities. They're sort, of, they're sort of places where Satan can get a foothold in your life. And, of course, he's not only instant taking you down, he's take, instant taking your family down and others down. So that's one reason why self-control is a virtue that's encouraged in Holy Scripture. New Testament reports that Satan was present in the churches of Jerusalem, Corinth, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Philadelphia. So you're crazy if you don't think Satan is present here too. Now, I don't know if, we're, if we've gotten Satan's attention, but his minions are certainly going to be present here. There is a spiritual battle going on right now in this room between angels and demons. The angels are protecting us. The demons are trying to protect us. And I'm not trying to get too Hollywood on you. I'm just telling you it's there. It's there. Let me give you an example here. Zechariah chapter 3. I love this text because it, so, it shows God's grace. People say in the Old Testament, oh, people got saved by law. Uh, and in the Old Test New Testament, they got saved by grace. That's not true at all. People in the Old Testament got saved the same way people in the New Testament got saved. Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah, there's this great vision here. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to do what? To accuse him. He's the, he's the prosecuting attorney pointing to Joshua the high priest, talking about all his failings, all the things he's messed up as a ministry, all of his lack of self-control, all of his self-pity. You just fill in the blank. 
And Satan evidently doesn't even get the words out. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, who has chosen rebu Jerusalem, rebuke you. It is, not a is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Y'all, if you think, you ever had one of these nightmares? You ever, you know, where you, um, you show up to a nice party and you're wearing gym clothes? Or you're not wearing any clothes, you know, one of these nightmares, right? Well, here's, here's a nightmare. Here you are before the throne of God and you are wearing filthy garments. That term filthy probably means covered with dung. You are reeking with your own sins, standing before a holy God. And the devil's just looking, look at all those sins. Look at this filthy character coming in front of you. That's what's going on here. That's this court scene here. And what does the Lord do? Rebukes him. He's a chosen one. He's a chosen one. But the print, uh, I'm sorry. Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those, this is uh, Christ, I guess, or, or God, who was standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Mercy, right? Again, he said, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you, clothe you with festal robes. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you know how important that passage is? Again, this is Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, post-exilic Israel. He's writing to remind Israel, which has been leveled, turned into a parking lot by the Persians. God, if God has chosen you, you are forgiven. Not only are you forgiven, the robes that are being described here are the robes of a high priest, festal robes. And they put a clean turban on his head. They take the filthy garments, they burn them up, they're gone. He is no longer considered filthy, he is considered clean. Do you remember the description of the priest's garments in the Old Testament? Do you remember the turban? Do you remember what's on the turban? A gold plaque. You know what that gold plaque says? Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. No matter what sins you've committed, if you are in the Lord, if you are born again, if you possess the Holy Spirit, if you are a true, genuine Christian, that's how God sees you because that's how he dressed you. And, but Satan is still there to accuse you, is he not? This is important for you to remember because this gives us the power to be able to resist him. He says that he hindered us. Paul says that Satan hindered us. That idea of hindering is to break up a road or place obstacles, to dig a trench, to dig a fort against what the apostle Paul was trying to do that. And it's interesting, even even demons will hinder angels at times. Let me give you another Old Testament passage, and this one's wild. So buckle up your seatbelts here. Daniel chapter 10. You ever read this passage? So it's at, uh, after receiving a vision, Daniel uh, is uh, he's in Persia. After receiving a vision, uh, an angelic being comes to him and says to him, uh, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before uh, uh, our God, your words were heard. In other words, your prayers are being hear heard and I've been dispatched to come answer those prayers. And I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. 
For I had been left there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision pertains to today's future. Are you catching that scene? Here's Daniel. He is praying to heaven. He's hoping for an answer. He's had a vision here and an angel shows up and says, listen, we heard you three weeks ago, but I've been fighting the demon who's the prince of Persia and he, wouldn't, he was withstanding me. Paul, and I couldn't come give you the message until Michael, the archangel over God's chosen people, came with, I guess, a, an army, special forces, and, and, and freed me and fought the demons so I could get here and answer the prayer. Is that not an awesome passage? That's what's going on right now. So if you've been hindered by Satan, you're in good company. Daniel was hindered by Satan, but so was the angel that was bringing him the message. But it's interesting if you're being hindered in something, how do you tell the difference whether it's God or the devil? Because sometimes God hinders you as well. Go back to Acts 16, right before the church in Thessalonica was planted. And they passed through Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to come to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them by passing to Mysia, and they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing, appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So basically, Paul wanted to go take the, the gospel to Asia, and the Spirit, notice it's the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus. There's a Trinity verse for you. Same Spirit, different names, right? Different persons of the Trinity. Prevented him from doing that. So, the question is, is it Satan that's hindering you or is it God who's hindering you? And of course, what's the answer? Yes, <laughs> because the Satan is God's Satan. Linsky says this, Satan succeeded in frustrating Paul's two plans to return to Thessalonica, but only because this accorded with God's own plans regarding the work Paul has to do. Satan asked, I want to sift Peter. Peter was sifted. Peter betrayed Jesus Christ. Peter was restored on the shores of Galilee and became a martyr for Christ. It suited God's plans to allow Satan to sift Peter because that would make Peter a much stronger Christian as a result, a much more mature person in general as a result. Now we see here the ministry ambition, verses 19 through 20 here. He says, who is our hope and our joy and our crown? Of course, those are wonderful terms that Paul consistently uses again. Hope, again, biblical hope is different from the hope that most Americans have. Most Americans hope that there's something good on Netflix tonight. We hope that the cafeteria has pizza. You know, and it really kind of means that we really don't expect it. That's not the way it is with, with, with biblical hope. It's a certainty of the future. It, it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that hope abides. There's an absolute confidence and uh, the sure that the future has been guaranteed by Christ's own resurrection from the dead. So this isn't fingers crossing hope. It's, it's happening. It is happening. And my faith is set upon that. Joy, of course, has less to do with feelings, but to our reaction in the presence of Christ as we are in this morning, uh, even though he is invisible, one day he will be visible and we will have joy. And I love this crown of exaltation. When we think of crown, we think of, uh, you know, if you studied Western civilization, you think of the big old crown like you put on, well, now King Charles's head, you know, this giant. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is a laurel wreath, like you, like 
you would give to an athlete. And, and when a visitor would come, a, a dignitary would come into a town, they would give him a golden laurel wreath. But Paul, of course, is not talking about uh, God putting a, an actual crown on their heads. He's talking about uh, when they stand before the Lord, when he returns, when they are in, as our, as our Westminster Confession of Faith uh, verse said today, uh, that, that he is going to crown them with righteousness, with glory, with perfection, and with joy, according to one commentator. Boy, I could take some of that perfection, couldn't you? It's going to happen one day. How about joy? You have a hard time having joy one, sometimes? Yeah, we're always tempted to not have joy. Righteousness, glory, glory. It's been said that if we could see each other now in our glorified state, we would be tempted to fall down and worship. That's the plan that God has for us. It's really hard to see. That's why we have to embrace this principle of hope. Uh, the crown uh, or wreath denotes the overwhelming victory of God, gives over sin, suffering, death, and judgment, according to one commentator. And of course, this is intended to motivate you. It's, you got to have some motivation to, 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 to fight against Satan, don't you? And it's intended to do so, as is Revelation 22, which Jesus says, I'm behold, behold, I am coming, and my reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. My reward is with me. Well, that seems unspiritual to be motivated by this reward. Well, are you more spiritual than the Bible? The Bible wants you to know a reward is coming. Stay in the fight. You keep that reward. When you run the race with endurance, that, it's because you see that reward. That reward is coming. But in the meantime, the devil's tripping you in the race all the time. He's trying to tackle you. He's trying to throw you down and set up a bank against you to keep you from being able to do that. But we will be here in this presence. This is where he kind of starts, you know, again, our theme verse is the, our theme of this uh, series is to live in the light of his return. And Paul's constantly reminding them of his return, his parousia. Uh, Perusia, uh, that he is going to be coming back. And then at that point in time, we will join with him in the train of victory. And then we see here uh, this uh, ministry in action versus uh, first two verses of chapter three here. He says we can endure it no longer. The pain was difficult. He, he was willing to be left behind in Athens in order to find out how they're being do uh, how they're doing. So we sent Timothy, his closest companion, uh, and he calls Timothy three things. Our brother, so they have the same father, so they're brothers, uh, spiritual brothers, because God is their father. And God's fellow worker. Isn't that interesting? Do you know that you can be a, or you are, if you're a Christian, a fellow worker with God? A, a co-worker? He's got a plan, and he's using you to accomplish that plan. How, why he does that is kind of beyond us sometimes, right? We Probably would use somebody else, but we are fellow workers with God. And in the gospel of Christ, Paul just can't get over calling this thing the gospel of Christ. He says gospel of God three times now. He calls it the gospel of Christ. Again, there's another Trinitarian verse. It's the same gospel, different persons of the Trinity here. And to do what? To strengthen and encourage you. This is one of the purposes for the mission to send Timothy to the Thessalonians. Uh, the other is to find out about your faith. And then we see a ministry affliction here, uh, the idea that suffering is going to come. He says here, you yourself know. He calls them to testify the truth themselves. That's a great debate tactic. You know this to be true already. You need to agree with me here. Uh, I was there when we were, that we were destined for this kind of difficulty. So don't be dismayed by afflictions as affliction is literally appointed in advance. 
There's a, a map of affliction, a, a, a map uh, of your life already planned out in advance because God loves you enough not to spoil your rotten and to know that there's certain afflictions that need, that, that need to happen in your life in order to build certain character qualities that are necessary uh, in your life. He says, for indeed, when you were with you, we kept telling you. This is kind of Paul's sort of I told you so statement here. This is a constant theme. And again, think about how many people seem to peddle the word of God these days. How many people seem to try to present the gospel like a sales pitch? They want to minimalize all the downsides of being a Christian and maximize all the others. And, it's, and it just becomes disingenuous sometimes. You know, they don't, all that difficult stuff about being a Christian, they don't want you to know about that. They just want you to sign on the dotted line, walk the aisle, whatever it might be. That was, not, that was not the way Jesus did it. Look at the bread of life discourse. He ran off everybody with the bread of life discourse. It's not the way Paul did it. Paul said in Acts chapter 14, after they had preached the gospel in the city and made many, I think this is Lystra, yeah, many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch to strengthen the souls of the disciples. He's going back through his circuit where he evangelized before, encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So if you're dealing with difficulty, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because he does love you. You're just not going to grow in faith and confidence and enjoy unless you're tested, unless you are denied things. Now, that may come through the agency of Satan. He may, Satan may thwart you, but again, it's because God allows him to and it's for your good and for the, the good for the church and that kind of thing. That we will suffer affliction. We will suffer for affliction. You know, this, the reason why is that if you're a true Christian, your worldview is completely opposite of the world in general. And you make them uncomfortable because of that. Because your morals, because of your faith, because you are not uh, dissuaded from following Christ because of the the bangles and the shiny stuff of this world. And that makes them not like you. You're not very good company sometimes. When I became a Christian, I lost most of my friends because partying sort of was the thing that brought us together. I wasn't a whole lot fun at the party after that. All right. And this is one reason why God calls us to love each other because the world hates us. The world hates us. And we need love. And it's good that those of us who are hated by the world come together with a common sense of love for one another. I love this idea of affliction, how God allows it and even uses Satan. Uh, John Lilly, a, a, a pastor in the Free Church of Scotland in the, in the uh, 19th century, said this, It is enough for us to know that such is the will of God, that his fiery trials happen not without his knowledge and consent and purpose and control, that he sits by the mouth of the furnace into which his people are cast, and that both the fervor and the duration of the process are regulated by his infinite fatherly wisdom and love. Gladly, we may be sure he would spare us were it not for the necessities of the case arising from the prevalence of sin and death in the world and the presence of both in the church itself. So the way we do this, uh, if you want to break down obedience into two portions, what you coming here today is active obedience. We're going to go to church 
and we're going to go worship the Lord and we're going to learn from him and we're going to sing praises to him. That's active. But there's there is another aspect of obedience that is really just as important. And that would be considered passive obedience. And that is, as Jeremiah Burroughs says, that uh, that we worship him just as what by being pleased with whatever he does. That we walk with the spirit of contentment that whatever comes our way comes from the hand of a loving God. That is worship. You're not getting all bent out of shape and all upset because something doesn't go your way is worship when you accept the providence of God. There's a great example in Micah. We'll get to Micah, I guess, around Advent season. But Micah 5 is that wonderful passage. Uh, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be named among the clans. Out of you will come forth from me a ruler of Israel is going forth so from long ago, from days of eternity, the, 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 the prophecy that Jesus is going to be, the Messiah is going to be born uh, in Bethlehem. But if you keep reading that passage, it says this one will be our peace when the Assyrian, inv- Assyrian invades the land. Now, if you know anything about the history of warfare, if you've been to Israel, you go to the, uh, the, the museum in Jerusalem there, there's a giant relief of the Assyrians. They got it from, I guess, Nineveh. And it shows what Syrians do in battle, and it includes impaling their prisoners of war on big poles. Like, like Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, got the idea from the Assyrians. Skinning prisoners of war alive. The Syrians were not nice invaders. They weren't like, hey, you mind if we move in next door? Maybe, you know, like share sugar every now and then. No, it's like, we're going to get you, impale you, and skin you alive if you don't do what we say, all right? And yet, this peace that comes to us, this child that is born to us in Bethlehem, he is to be our peace. That's the reason why we can have this passive obedience. Because we know that in the midst of the turmoil of this life, our God reigns. Our God reigns and the devil cannot touch you, but the devil will, the God will use the devil at times to hinder you in order to grow you up in God's purposes. So he is our peace. Well, we're not going to enjoy that if we keep fighting back, if we keep claiming our right to ourselves. We need to be like Paul was in Galatians 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh Live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Wherever you end up going to church, because I know some people are visitors here, I hope it's a place that serious Christians go to. I hope it's a place that serious Christians go to. The kind of Christians who want to live out, they fail, we all fail, but want to live out uh, Galatians 2.20. That I've been crucified. I have lost my identity I am a Christian first before I am an individual. Because that's really where the joy is found. You know, it, as Jesus says, it, it, it hurts to kick against the goads. You know, a goad is a spear that they would use to stab the ox. And when we're fighting God's providence or we're having a pity party or we're upset at God or we're moaning about our life circumstances, we're kicking against a spear. That's what it's like. So he says it came to pass, as you know. So he's speaking about this opposition that occurred here and... Um, and he's, uh, he's reminding them of this, uh, this difficult ordeal that has happened to them. And he's trying to encourage them to stay in the fight. Then you see here ministry achievement in chapter, uh, verse chapter, uh, I'm, chapter 5 of uh, 
verse 5 of chapter 3. That only took 15 minutes. Uh, For this reason, I can endure it no longer. I also sent to find out about your your faith. Okay, so he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them, but also to find out about faith. Paul is consumed with faith. He mentions this principle five times, this idea. And remember, these folks were idol worshipers. I think we talked about this in men's Bible study this week. What's the advantage of worshiping an idol? You can see it. I am bowing down before Zeus. There's Zeus. There's Athena. There's Thor. There's fill in the blank. I can see it. These people no longer see their God. And faith is what they have to have right now because you can't see our God. You have to accept him based upon his word here. So he keeps emphasizing this whole idea of faith. And he was concerned that the tempter, here's our, our second Satan verse, the tempter might have tempted them. Um, this idea that uh, they, he was concerned that under being just crushed by the opposition that they would bail. And again, this goes back to this idea of the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. Uh, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whom seed was sown beside the road. We already talked about that verse with Satan. Then the one whose seed was sown in the rocky place is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm foundation within himself. He's cut himself off from fellowship. He's not reading. He's not studying. But it's only temporary when affection or persecution, affliction or persecution arise because the word immediately falls away. And the one on whom the seed is sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's probably where so many Christians in our country are. Now, we're just a distracted people. Then there's the good news. Then the one on whom the seed was sown and the good soil, this man hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some 100, some 60, and some 30-fold. Well, that last one that we all want to bear fruit for the Lord, it doesn't happen unless you resist Satan consistently. That when he hinders you, you try to find another way. That you stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We have to operate that way consistently. Why? Because he is evil. Kent Hughes says this, Satan has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, no morals. He feeds on pain and anguish and filth. There is nothing in Satan which is redeemable. There is no virtue, not only a dark cannibal void. You know that Satan hates Satan worshipers? He hates Satan worshipers. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. Even a Satan worshiper has a, a, a little bit of divine in him. He's made in the image of God. Satan hates them. He's just going to use them. But he says this, he's glad that their labor is not in vain. That idea of vain would have been wasted time. uh, uh, But they've actually, uh, Timothy has reported that they've had some success. So my encouragement to you is we go to school on what the Apostle Paul was facing, what the Thessalonians were facing, what churches forever have faced, and what we will consistently face, that we embrace it and that we do so with joy. That we manage our expectations based on the fact that we're going to have a difficult time in this life. And uh, everybody has a difficult, it's a fallen world. I mean, everybody has a difficult time of life. But, for, but there's an extra tension for those of us who have principles that are contrary to the principles that surround us. And you're in the gun sight of Satan or his minions. He wants to thwart you. He wants to hinder you. So what do we do? Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly placements. So I, the, your ultimate goal is to stand firm, is to stand firm. What will happen when we do that? Well, there's good news. Paul closes his letter to the Romans with what actually happens at the end. You don't have to wait till Revelation to see the end. In Romans chapter 16, he says this, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How about that? You're going to get to be a devil crusher. The church is going to crush Satan because God's going to use the church to destroy his kingdom. The hindering will work if we don't stand firm. But when we stand firm, we will win in the end. Lord, I pray, God, that you would just help us to stand firm, to be committed to the things of God, to take an evaluation of our life, not to live in fear of Satan. We have nothing to fear other than our own sin. Let us know that we're on the right side. We're on the powerful side. We're on the victorious side. Let us go to battle with joy and with hope and expectation in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.